Hello, and welcome to the Early American Brass Band Podcast. I'm Chris Triano, joined always by my friend Stephen Canastrasi. Hello, hello. And this is episode number six, where we'll be talking about so much, so much. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> with Yari Villanueva from Baltimore, Maryland. We're going to be talking about the history of taps, the Yari's time in the Air Force Band, his time as a field musician reenactor, his time with the Federal City Brass Band, the 26th North Carolina Band. Uh, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this one is just packed full of history, personal experience, and he, he's such a good speaker and so friendly, and we were really lucky to have the opportunity to chat with him, and we hope to have him on a few more times at least uh, to talk about some other stuff. So, um, yeah, I, I think we're you're really going to enjoy this one. So, Stephen, before we get going, where can our listeners help support us? Anywhere you get podcasts, um, you can find us, and it really helps if you like the show, subscribe to the show, rate the show, if that's a function uh, on the platform of your choosing. Um, and what would really help is if you subscribe to the YouTube channel. We're also there. We upload the episodes there. And just share the episode, any episode, with anyone you think might be interested. Um, I mean, we love recording these episodes, and there's a lot of history here. Um, so if there's anyone in your life that, you know, might enjoy listening to people talk for an hour or so about Civil War music and in that time period, please share the show with them. And with YouTube, we are hoping and sometime in the future to use that in it as a platform to drop the episodes, but also to host some exclusive YouTube content also. So that will uh, at some point become its own destination for early American brass band podcast content. Definitely. And we'll, and we'll yeah. be sure to, to let you know, uh, in the episode when, when that starts becoming a thing. But might as well subscribe now and uh, use YouTube as a source now as well. That would be very helpful. Yeah. So here is our interview with Yari Villanueva. Enjoy. All right, welcome, Mr. Yari Villanueva, to episode number six. We're super excited to have you on the podcast this afternoon. At first, would you like to maybe start with giving us a little bit of your very early years, maybe uh, when you started getting into music or if you came from a musical family, you know, those sorts of early details. Well, great. First of all, let me say thank you for having me on this podcast. I think it's a, a terrific thing that uh, both you guys are doing, helping to bring forth the history of this almost overlooked period of our uh, musical uh, history in the United States. Sure. Uh, the mid-19th century was just full of some really wonderful music, and it is the genesis of what we know as today as the concert band movement and everything. Everything mm -hmm. seems to start in that mid-19th century. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I actually uh, started playing trumpet way, way back in the 1960s when I was <laughs> in elementary school. Um, I'm actually an, an, I'm, I'm an immigrant. I was born in Finland and we came over here with the family in the 1950s, moved to Northeast Baltimore, went through a public school system uh, in Baltimore City. Uh, then I uh, got a scholarship uh, for Peabody Conservatory, first going to the preparatory department for two years and then uh, landing in the conservatory where I studied with uh, Don Tyson on trumpet. Hmm. Uh, my uh, degree, undergraduate degree, was in education. So um, while I was there, I was really much into thinking that my career was going to be in education, you know, doing high school or elementary school band. Mm -hmm. And while I was at Peabody, I had 
just great opportunities for performance. Uh, for example, uh, of course, the bands uh, that was uh, playing in the band and orchestra at Peabody, but also at the time I was there, uh, there was a great renaissance in Baltimore. Uh, following the riots of 1968, the uh, new mayor, uh, William Donald Schaefer, spent the 1970s basically touting about how great Baltimore was and doing a great renaissance, building Harbor Place uh, that still attracts people uh, every year down to the Inner Harbor. Uh, he was also very into arts. He helped uh, form uh, arts organization. And because of that, I found myself being able to put together groups to perform all around Baltimore. We did a lot of performances at uh, uh, Hopkins Plaza, at the War Memorial Plaza in front of City Hall, and, and throughout the and throughout the city. Mm -hmm. Really wonderful time. Then, of course, in 1976 was the bicentennial of our nation, and that really just exploded with a lot of playing opportunities and mm -hmm. one of the biggest ones i had was uh playing with a group called the peabody ragtime ensemble mm -hmm. we were styled after the new england conservatory ragtime ensemble that was popular in the early 70s after that movie the sting oh, yeah. and <laughs> uh, uh and uh, then after that uh, uh I, I played with a lot of different groups and in 1980 uh got a position teaching high school I was at the uh, Baltimore City College, which is the third oldest high school in the United States. Oh, wow. Taught there for a couple of years and then uh, dropped out of teaching to go back and uh, do my master's degree full time. Mm -hmm. uh, and I traveled to Kent State University where I spent one year working on my master's. Really terrific experience. Came back here, taught for half a year and then uh, won the audition with the Air Force Band. Oh, and wow. I 1985. So in 1985, I joined up and I spent 23 years with that great organization. And uh, uh, if I could go back tomorrow, I would. <laughs> <laughs> was that audition for the ceremonial brass or was that for the concert band? That was for the ceremonial brass. Uh, at that time, when I took the audition, it was uh, called the ceremonial band. Uh, in the early 80s, they were they still had woodwinds in that group. Oh, wow. uh, and as 1984, Four and 85 approached, they decided to eliminate the woodwinds out of that group, make a brass group and rename it the ceremonial brass. Gotcha. However, for big ceremonies uh, like par parades and uh, arrival ceremonies, they would add the woodwind section from the concert band. Mm -hmm. Makes okay. sense. Makes sense. Did you spend your whole career in the, the ceremonial unit or did you switch around between that and concert sometimes? Well, what's really wonderful is that uh, I was able to substitute here and there with the band. You know, uh, one of my greatest joys was playing a, a two-week tour on fourth trumpet with the Airmen of Note. Wow. Uh, yeah, That's down in awesome. Florida. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Not so, bad, yeah. You no, know, <laughs> playing with those guys was just unbelievable. Uh, I did leave the ceremonial brass for about a year and a half to two years. Uh, when I shifted over to music production. Because when I came into the band, uh, they knew that I had arranging uh, chops. Mm -hmm. And um, also, I developed computer skills, copying music. Mm -hmm. So a uh, trombone player, uh, Rob Masit, good buddy of mine, was on the copyist staff, and he was itching to get back and do some playing. So we swapped. <laughs> and uh, so for a year and a half, I went over and worked as a 
uh, an arranger for the ceremonial brass, still providing them arrangements as, as I always had done, but mm -hmm. also working as a copyist. Okay. Uh, unfortunately now, music copyists, uh, it's basically, it's a dead art now. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, yeah, unfortunately, with, yeah, for sure. everybody could, you know, provide their scores on computer. Uh, but I got homesick for the ceremonial brass. I really enjoyed doing the ceremonies at Arlington Cemetery. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I moved back and uh, then did other roles within the band. I, I worked as an assistant drum major mm -hmm. for many years and uh, got to lead the band on some really incredible uh, performances and kept uh, uh, playing and uh, writing arrangements. You did a lot of bugling with the uh with the air force band right is that was that a position that was separate from the ceremonial brass or when you guys were already in arlington for a ceremony did the whatever trumpet player was on the job did they take that bugle role as well there well bugling in the air force band um and i think it still is the same uh the buglers from the ceremonial brass are charged with playing uh, or sounding taps at arlington national cemetery and uh not all funerals have an entire band at the same time. Uh -huh. So uh, it will be just a separate bugler who will go out and sound taps at, at, at uh, smaller ceremonies at Arlington. Um, when the band plays uh, at a funeral, a trumpeter from within the band steps out of formation and sounds the call. Mm. Uh, okay. but, but we also, uh, we, we, we had it where one person for one month, every month would, uh, do nothing but bugle duties and we called them of course the bugler of the month and <laughs> they got to go out and do every little bugle ceremony you know whether it be uh maybe a change of command ceremony retirement ceremony where they just wanted a bugle call the numerous uh cemetery uh funeral honors and also playing uh uh funerals outside of arlington so we would travel i traveled as far as uh erie pennsylvania Oh, okay. to, to sound taps and one time even was flown out to Missouri for the wow. funeral for a former congressman who had passed away. Wow. Now was the bugler of the month viewed as an honor or was that kind of like uh, going down the list in <laughs> and kind of a, a job? <laughs> well, it was a duty and okay. a cert a certainly, you know, it was one that everyone took very seriously um, because it's it's really something for a a lone bugler to stand there. Um, you're the only one, and if you crack a note, it's like everyone's going to know. Yeah. And right. so it, it, there was a, a bit of pressure with each one of those uh, mm -hmm. performances. And one of the great things about the Air Force Band is that they've been able to attract such really first-rate trumpeters who who go out mm -hmm. there and, and sound calls. Um, and I will tell you that it was during my time with the Air Force Band that I got involved heavily with Civil War. Hmm. Um, I had always been interested in the Civil War when I was a kid. Um, I loved going to the library, but I remember that the first books I ever looked through was the, uh, uh, the American Heritage two-volume set on the Civil War. Hmm. And then I found a book called... Uh, by the Francis Lord book on drummer boys. Oh yeah. Yeah. The, the uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that was the standard back then that, that came out like in the mid sixties. Yeah. And for many years, you know, that was like the book, if you wanted to know anything about civil war music. Mm -hmm. And so I had always had this interest in the civil war, 
But of course, you know, teaching and gigging and then being in the Air Force Band, you know, sort of that sort of fell to the wayside. But while I was in the Air Force Band, and I can remember this as if it happened yesterday, I was on the bus uh, sitting behind the drum major, uh, Chief uh, Stevens. And this was probably like the late 80s. And he turned around and he asked me, do you know how taps came about? Hmm. And I did the, yeah, the, the, <laughs> the, the stare <laughs> and I had no idea. And so uh, I went home and I started looking up information. And of course, eight, 1980s is, you know, prior to any kind of internet searches. Oh, yeah. mm -hmm. Right. So I did it the old fashioned way. Mm -hmm. You know, I started hitting libraries. I um, went down to the Library of Congress, the National Archives. I took a trip up to Carlisle, the military library up there. Uh, and then started making phone calls and finding out who was the you know best you know, where was the best information on bugling taps and bugles itself, and along the way met some really terrific people. The I guess my mentor as far as bu the bugling went uh, bugles was a guy named Jack Carter, and Jack was an uh, uh, an engineer by trade who spent his entire life collecting bugles. And his collection was just absolutely phenomenal. Hmm. And he seemed to know everything about every type of bugle ever made. Interesting. So that, that got me going on this long trip, uh, this journey into learning about bugling. And then, of course, the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And so I figured, well, you know, the best way to learn about Civil War bugling is to get yourself a good bugle, get yourself the, the proper uniforms, and fix yourself up with a, a reenactment unit and go out mm -hmm. there and start spending some weekends and yeah, see yeah. what they do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, wow. And I've, I found a great unit, the, the Third United States Infantry uh, Reenactment Group. They are the Civil War version of the Old Guard today, what okay. became oh, okay. became the Old Guard in Arlington. Mm -hmm. uh, and they were known as the Buff Sticks during the Civil War. They were the, the professional soldiers. And of, mm -hmm. Of course, since you know I was a professional military guy at the time, I, I wanted to be in a unit where they took like the uniform seriously, making sure the buttons were polished and, sure. and things like that. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So, well, I'm I'm glad you brought up taps in preparation this morning. I uh, was on YouTube and I found an old clip of you uh, in the, from the History Channel uh, oh. going through the history of taps, and that was great to watch because I, I needed a little bit of a refresher. Um, and what really stood out to me in that video was was the bugle you were playing do you mind talking a little bit about that instrument is that a personal instrument yes i have a few of those they, those are uh what are called clarons they are a french instrument um just like the uniforms of the civil war the tactics of the civil war we borrowed everything from the french in <laughs> fact uh, george mcclellan as a young captain had gone over to france to study uh you know french uh, military tactics and you know uh, the, the uniform was basically changed prior to the civil war to almost look you know to look like french uniforms in fact some early units had french much more french designed uniforms and of course the zouaves you know which came about mm -hmm. french french design yeah. uh, but the horn that I've, I've been using is uh, a copper clairon uh, i have a couple of them some 
fewer unmarked, a couple all marked, like uh, Clem Brothers of Philadelphia, another one, uh, it's Bauer of Chicago. And these are uh, copper with a, a brass garland on it. These bugles were pitched in the key of C, all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the inf- standard infantry bugle was in C. However, a lot of buglers used what was called a, a pigtail crook uh, to lower it into the key of B flat. Hmm. I've been trying to figure out why B flat. Uh, maybe <laughs> it's just because it was easier to play in that key. Hmm. Um, but you'll see a lot of photos of buglers at that time with the clarion uh, and the, 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 the crook on it. Now, those were the instruments used in the infantry. The cavalry used trumpets. And that, of course, brings us to a huge, you know, misunderstanding about uh, bugling and bugles during the Civil War. And even goes on to this day. There's a difference between bugles and trumpets. And unfortunately, when you say trumpet to somebody, they automatically think of the three-valved modern trumpet. Mm-hmm. Um, not the natural trumpet that was used as far back as, you know, uh, Baroque uh, orchestras and stuff. Mm-hmm. And of course, those instruments, as we all know, can only play certain notes. And they were usually played uh, in symphonies with fanfare type of uh, articulations, usually with the timpani. And that's how it was uh, with uh, the cavalry, the same type of thing. You can only play so many different notes. Um and the, the trumpet was pitched on a lower key than the infantry bugle. Uh, if infantry, uh, yeah, excuse me, cavalry trumpets were usually pitched in F or E flat, hmm. lower. Uh, but as time went on, you, you would find cavalry musicians, buglers using the B flat horn. So it, 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 it becomes it becomes very you know difficult to to uh, uh, to tell the difference. But if you look at the music of the time, trump, trumpet music and bugle music are two different things, completely two different things. Uh, the trumpet music is usually written an octave lower, in the same way as any Mozart or Beethoven symphony. It's in that lower octave, while the bugle is written in a higher pitch. They still are, are based on the overtone series, though. Mm-hmm. Of course. So, now, for the Civil War, when field musicians enlisted or became viewers, was it a were they uh, enlisting people that could already play trumpet or the bugle, or were they enlisted as soldiers or as field musicians and then told, "All right, you need to learn this instrument for <laughs> the entire regiment." <laughs> The answer is yes. <laughs> all of the above. All of the above. Uh, you, you find stories of uh, uh, musicians who came in uh, who had some experience playing brass instruments, and they were made the company bugler. Mm-hmm. You would learn. You would learn the calls. Now, fifers and drummers, of course, they were of a much younger age. Buglers, you find, you tend to see a little bit older. Uh, because, it, uh, of course, as we know, as brass players, it takes a little longer to develop uh, a decent embouchure to play the instrument. Fifes and drums, boy, if, you, if you, and this is one of the things about reenactment that I learned. Kids pick up fifes and drums so quickly. Huh. You know, I would go to a reenactment and hear a kid who would be beating on drums and a kid who would be playing fifes, and they were just awful. 
two months later, they'd be playing Downfall of Paris. Wow. And it's, 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 it, they, you, you adapt to it so quickly uh, mm-hmm. as a kid. It's like learning a, a, a language. It's so much easier when you're younger. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you see a lot of these buglers who are a little bit older um, and usually have, have played a brass instrument before. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there was schools set up, as you know. Uh, the, the most famous one we know of is, was at Governor's Island. It was mm-hmm. called the School of Practice, where they would send these uh, musicians to be trained up not only to be to, to, to further their skills as musicians, but also to learn how to be soldiers. Mm-hmm. And so from those uh, schools, they would then go to a, a unit. Um, usually um, one of one of the, um, the professional or uh, units, the uh, <laughs> not the volunteer units, because mm-hmm. the volunteer units usually brought their brought their own. Gotcha, gotcha. Uh, the, the regulars, excuse me, that's what I was trying to think. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you would you'd have guys like, for example, Oliver Wilcox Norton was a bugler with the eighty third Pennsylvania, and he probably had some experience playing uh, as a young man. Uh, but came in as a bugler with Company G of of the 83rd. Um, he was not only a, a bugler, but he also picked up a, a musket at times because uh, he writes about it in his books. How uh, what during a battle he had uh, a, a musket shot out from from between his hands, not once but twice. Yikes. Yeah, and so. And he's he is the guy who we recognize as being the first bugler ever to sound taps. Hmm. But did he write it, or did somebody uh, give it to him to read? <laughs> uh, another great story. Yeah. <laughs> well, taps has such a, a, a very interesting uh, origin to it. Um, there's always been some sort of lights out signal in the military usually something that was beaten on drums. And, and as we have to remember, uh, the call for the lights out, to go to sleep, to turn off their lights, usually followed the last roll call of the day, which was called tattoo. Mm-hmm. And in the military uh, back then, of course, the military loved to take roll calls and there would be three official roll calls of the day. The first one would happen at Reveille. Uh, if you've ever been to a Civil War event, you hear Reveille being sounded on the bugle, and then you hear this long concert by the uh, fifes and drums mm-hmm. as they play what's called the Three Camps. That's t- to give the soldiers enough time to fall in on the company streets and the role be taken. The second roll call of the day was taken at the end of the duty day, uh, which was called Retreat. And retreat doesn't mean to run away from the face of the enemy. It, it, it means it means the ending of the duty day and uh, another roll call. Then the final roll call of the day was the tattoo. And the tattoo, which dates back as to the 12th century, was usually uh, run by the provost or the sergeant major of a garrison who would take a drummer and they'd go through the town beating the tattoo. And this was not only a signal for the soldiers to return back to the garrison for the final roll call, but also a signal for the barkeeps to stop serving liquor. <laughs> <laughs> so that's where this uh, didn't 
Dodin Tap Toe, the Dutch comes from. Um, and of course, I'm probably going to get a lot of people, you know, arguing, no, no, that's not what that means. And, and, and yeah, I understand. And I, I've tried to figure that out myself. After the last roll call, there would be a signal for, for lights out. Mm -hmm. Now, in the infantry manuals of the time, the call for lights out was one that was taken from the French uh, tactics. Now, as I mentioned before, we borrowed everything from the French, which is very, we have a very interesting history of borrowing things throughout uh, our military history. Mm -hmm. uh, during the American Revolution, we really didn't have any kind of set calls uh, in our book. So by the end of the revolution, we were using calls and signals based from the English, okay? Mm -hmm. Then that switched to the French um, after uh, 1812. Uh, we got a little tiff with the English again. So we, just, <laughs> we decided to, to use French-based uh, 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 signals. So if you would look at a military tactics book from 1860 and turn to, the, to turn to the bugle calls, then open a French manual tactics of the same period, you will notice they are the same exact bugle calls. Hmm. Exact, you know, so, so the call for extinguished lights uh, was a call um, that Napoleon liked. It sounds like this. Now, that call, it turns out, was Napoleon's favorite bugle call. And Napoleon even had a, a, a school of music for and a, a training school for buglers. Well, and just for anyone who says, I recognize that call. Well, it's the first part of today's tattoo that we use in the military. So the old extinguished lights, the French call, you know, is the first part of our new tattoo. And, and by the way, this is where it gets all confusing. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, it usually was followed by the beating of a drum three times. Tap, tap, tap. That was the drum signal also for lights out. And soldiers started calling that, of course, drum taps. And if you read diaries of... Um, soldiers there's one like a vmi who who got demerits in 1840 for being out after taps and they're not referring to the bugle call that we know today they're re referring to the drum beat huh. 
So now enter uh, Daniel Adams Butterfield, who was from uh, Utica, New York, the son of John Butterfield, a very prominent businessman who started uh, an overland express service um, that was to later become American Express. He uh, he uh, was was quite uh, prominent in, in Utica. Very rich, very you know famous for the time. He uh, he uh, his he he sent his son off to Schenectady. That's a hard hard thing to say. I I apologize to my friends in New York, but yes, but Union College and. And the reason for him going off to Union College is that uh, Daniel, young Daniel, was a bit of a scamp, um, not a not a good kid. And there had been rumors that he had been involved with an arson where uh, two people had been killed. And so when the trial came up, uh, he was one of the, the people being accused on this. But Daddy was able to, to to get him out of town, and unfortunately, at least one of the other guys was actually hanged for the crime. Excellent. So, uh, so Dan, Daniel went off to uh, Union College, and then went off to see the world, and then came back to New York, where he enlisted in the Twelfth New York Militia, mm-hmm. and rose to the rank of Colonel. Through his political connections, he gets he uh, becomes a general officer. And his big claim to fame at the beginning of the Civil War is that he is the first general officer across the bridge uh, from Washington into Virginia after when the Civil War starts. Hmm. Uh, he has a brigade. It's the third third brigade third brigade first division fifth army corps that he's in charge of, known as Butterfield's Brigade. Um, they. Uh, they uh, are involved with several battles. Um, he's also a bit of a musician too. Mm-hmm. He's a bugler. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, Oliver Wilcox Norton, who's in the 83rd Pennsylvania, I mentioned him before, mm-hmm. by the way, the 83rd is part of that brigade. Mm-hmm. So that's the connection. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Uh, he even writes about Butterfield, like picking up the bugle and sounding the charge at battles. So he mm-hmm. knew that the, uh, that he was a, a good bugler. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, fast forward to uh, 1862, the summer. The Fifth Corps is on the shores of the James River, south of Richmond, after uh, the Seven Days Battle, mm-hmm. uh, where they almost took Richmond, but not quite. Um, and they're there for the entire month, for July into, uh, into August of 1862. 100,000 men camped along the, the river near Berkeley Plantation, also Harrison's uh, Landing, named after uh, a signer of the Declaration of Independence and a future uh, president of the United States. Uh, so every night, of course, the call, the regulation call is heard, and Butterfield doesn't like it. And he decides he's going to change it. So he gets the brigade bugler, who is Oliver Wilcox Norton. Even though he's with the 83rd, he's risen up to the rank of brigade bugler, hmm. which is kind of a nice deal for him because you get to ride a horse. Yeah. <laughs> <Thank> <laughs> <you>. <laughs> uh, so uh, whatever happens in that tent, and, you know, you, you hear so many variations, you know, Butterfield whistled the tune to him, 
wrote it down on a piece of paper, um, but he talks about it, how they change some notes here, lengthening some, shortening others here and there. Uh, but whatever, he goes out that evening and sounds the call for the first time. There's, there's 24 notes that we're familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, the next day, uh, buglers from other regiments, brigades, uh, find him and say, what was that? Mm-hmm. And he says, it's the new call that the general asked me to play. And everybody asked for a copy of the music. And pretty soon, everyone's playing it. Yeah. No one seems to know where the call came from. Hmm. You know, did, did Butterfield make it up from, you know, from his mind or was it uh, something? Well, it turns out that the call exists in an early manual, in the United States manual, in a trumpet call hmm. um, called, interestingly enough, Tattoo. <laughs> and it's an early tattoo that goes out of use prior to the Civil War. Uh, and if you look at the last six and a half measures of this old tattoo, you'll find the notes of taps. And you can, and if you look at it and compare it with the modern taps, you'll see what Nort was talking about, like lengthening some notes and slowing some notes down here. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question was, if this if this manual went out of use by the Civil War, how the heck did Butterfield know about it? And it turns out that when he was in the New York militia prior to the Civil War, he was training using old manuals. Mm. Oh, and, yeah. and, and there's actually documentation that states that. So yeah. he would have known the call. He probably had it in the back of his head and said, hey, nobody's using this call. I could probably just fix it up a little bit. and huh. hey, We got a brand new call. Thank you. 
So that's how TAPS came into being. It um, TAPS has no meaning. It, uh, it's not an acronym for anything. Mm. It's, not, it's not. It's not some strange language for tattoo. It's not a derivation of Dodin tapto. Um, what it is is that the word evolved from those three drum beats I'd mentioned before, because mm -hmm. the soldiers were uh, naturally called drum taps. In fact, I think there's a book called Drum Taps hmm. uh, about a Civil War experience, a soldier's experience. Uh, so when the bugle call takes over playing for the three drum taps, soldiers naturally start calling it taps. There you mm -hmm. go. So that's how it becomes. Long so, answer to this. Yeah, no, no, it's great. Yeah, it, it's important to know for yeah, sure. Yeah, and, and we know it primarily as it relates to its function in a in a funeral setting. And right. I remember that History Channel video. Uh, you mentioned that that came about out of necessity um, for a funeral for a, a cannon, an artillery soldier, and they didn't want to give their position away by doing the cannon volleys. Is it so that is that pretty much established as how that happened? Yes. Um, John Tibbalt was the captain with the, I think it was the 3rd United States Artillery. Um, and he had ordered, when it was the death of a cannoneer, that instead of the three rifle volleys, and by the way, okay. rifle, vo yeah. rifle volleys have always been used to signal as a customary signal at a funeral. And that, that signal itself goes predates back into antiquity where people would shout the name of the person or deceased three times above the uh, above the grave is that magical three number so every time when i hear you know a gun salute being referred to as a 24 gun salute you know i sort of bite my lip what what they what they really mean is the three volley salute so anyway john tibbalt decided to forego the three volleys uh, salute and just ordered the bugler to sound taps instead. Hmm. Now, what's important to realize is that taps is the only bugle call that has a dual purpose in our military. It was originally set as a call to go to sleep, lights out. And it still remains that way at every United States military base throughout the world at either 9 30 10 o'clock or 10 30 depending on the commander of the base taps is sounded that is the last call of the day but it also has a dual purpose as being the final musical uh honor at a military funeral and uh, i just uh, also have talked about this in an article i wrote uh called taps in the you know day of COVID 19 because we're seeing more and more uh, buglers who are going out every evening at seven o'clock on their front porch and sounding taps. Mm -hmm. uh, taps over the years has become uh, transcended the military. It, you know, people remember being at summer camp. If you were at Interlochen as a musician, you probably heard taps being sounded every evening. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they had buglers who, who were uh, part of that program. Uh, Girl Scouts and Boy Scouts, you know, picked up the call. Uh, it would be sounded at the end of fraternal organization meetings. So it's, it's become more than a, a, you know, military call. But, you know, bottom line, it is a, an honor that is reserved for our military uh, uh, personnel, those who've served honorably in uniform. Right. Uh, the call itself, after the Civil War, after John Tibble asks uh, his bugler to sound taps, the call is, is used more and more uh, at funerals. 
uh, services that by the end of the Civil War, it's done unofficially. At, as the years went on after the Civil War, there were more and more memorial services. People were erecting statues all over the country. There'd be wreath layings at uh, cemeteries. In 1868, we have our first official Memorial Day uh, uh, commemoration, which was called Decoration Day back then, mm -hmm. at Arlington National Cemetery. I've been trying to find out if taps was sounded at that ceremony um, and looking through all the records with that ceremony, I can't find, but we do know uh, that later on it was. So uh, now if you look in the army books, uh, the army manuals of 1870 and 1880, they have the call for extinguished lights. They finally get away from that French piece and they insert the music to taps but they don't call it taps. Mm. And the, the only reference to it is for lights out. So it's, so unofficially it's played at funerals. Mm -hmm. Finally in 1891, this is how long it takes the army to do it. <laughs> <laughs> 18, in 1891 in the manual, the army manual, it finally changes the title to taps with the explanation that the call is to be sounded after the firing of the three volleys. So that's the first official recognition of it. Even though it does appear in some private manuals ahead of time, the military doesn't officially recognize it until 1891. And then from there, uh, it, it just has become our, our national uh, song of remembrance. In fact, it took another, oh my goodness, <laughs> you know, a hundred and some years before we got Congress to recognize it uh, mm -hmm. as our national song of remembrance. Mm -hmm. uh, through the efforts of, 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 uh, of a few people uh, for the 150th anniversary of TAPS, we lobbied Congress to ask them to have it codified as a national song of remembrance, which they finally did in, in 2014. Oh, wow. So wow. The, the, only, the only sad part about that is that they didn't put in the protocols for it, which I had really hoped they would, like what to do. Because people still ask, when I hear taps, what do I do? Yeah. Do I stand up? Do I salute? You know, do I face the music? What do I do? What's the it's, answer to that? <laughs> the, the, the answer is quite easy. You, you treat it the same way as you would the national anthem. So if you're, if you're in uniform, you would salute. If you're not, you can put your hand over your heart. Uh, if you hear it from a, a distance, you will turn and face toward the music. And that's for at military funerals or memorial services. In the evening, when it sounded as a call to go to sleep, there is no real protocol required unless you're really gung-ho and want to salute. That's, yeah, they got you. <laughs> that's, that's okay. And I will tell you that at Arlington, uh, it's taken quite seriously. You know, if I was with uh, the honor guard uh, waiting for our funeral to arrive and we'd be standing around in a group talking and stuff, and then we'd hear three volleys go off and taps, everything would cease. Every member would turn towards the music and go to a salute. So that it, it's it's important, you know, that that honor is is made. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, as a a fan and student of history, all growing up, you uh, were able to combine that love of history and your duty as an airman, as a ceremonial bugler, to 
get into Civil War reenacting as a field musician. So then at what point did you transition or develop the hobby as well of researching Civil War brass bands and then kind of getting that playing kind of all together? Well, that, a wonderful question. I, um, I did a lot of going to events almost every weekend during the summer uh, for years until about the year 2000. And uh, I had heard some really wonderful recordings by uh, groups like the Americus Brass, uh, the Saxons uh, Cornet Band, the Wildcat Band. Uh, and I was thinking, wow, it would be really terrific to start doing something like this. Being a field musician was wonderful. Um, but, you know, playing brass band music, you know, it would seem like right up my line since I was, you know, a, a trumpet player. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I reached out uh to uh, I, I bought Mark Alrod's book. <laughs> of course, <laughs> of course, er everyone has yeah. Mark Alrod's book, <laughs> and so I reached out to him, and he wrote back, and uh, we started uh, a, a very good association, very good close relationship with him, and formed the Federal City Brass Band, mm -hmm. and that band uh, started uh, in two thousand and one. Our our first gigs were or performances were in 2002 uh with the uh, at 140th anniversary of the battle of antietam oh. that was the first thing that we did and so uh right from the start we wanted to do it correctly and and thank goodness i had folks like uh like uh, like mark and other folks who said okay if you want to do it correctly Here's what you got to do. I reached out to Saxon's Coronet Band too, and they were wonderful. I, Nikki Hughes, who's, who's been their drum major for, I think since the, uh, I think since the Wilson administration. Uh. <laughs> uh, Nikki, if you're listening to this, sorry. <laughs> uh, he was wonderful, and he provided a lot of great information. And um, so we decided, number one, if we're going to do this, we're going to do it right. We're going to, you know, get the correct instruments. We're going to find the correct uh, arrangements. We're going we're gonna to get the correct uniforms. Now, the Federal City Brass is a little different than most reenactment groups, uh, uh, bands, in that the majority of those bands will represent a specific band during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. uh, the 42nd uh, Pennsylvania, the 47th Pennsylvania, the Wildcat Band, the 1st Brigade Band. Uh, but we decided early on that it's, it's wonderful to, to pick one story, but it would be so much better if we could encompass everything and talk about, you know, what it was like, you know, generically. Mm -hmm. for for musicians for brass musicians during the civil war so that's why we decided to always say at our concerts you're looking at the representation of what a band would have looked like during the, the civil war period mm -hmm. uh, that way that we would we would not be confined to a certain repertoire that we, we could play a lot of uh, different things. And, of course, we reached into, you know, the, 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 the Manchester Cornet Band Library, the 3rd New Hampshire Band Library. Saxons provided a lot of great stuff. Of course, there was stuff that was online at the Library of Congress. Uh, Mark Elrod has an incredible library. Um, and there were band books, of course, that were printed just right after the Civil War, uh, the Squires book, for example, 
uh, and Mark has, I believe, all three volumes of that. And of course, there are the American Brass Journal that everybody knows. Of course. <laughs> which, by the way, brings up a sore point with me. <laughs> being, oh, yeah. being a bugler I, I brings up a kind of sore part with me. Uh, if you look at those arrangements, uh, it's, it's scored uh, for the you know, e, e flat, uh, B flat, uh, what they call altos. Oh, yeah, and that has uh, an E flat trumpet part in it, right? Correct. That's yeah. what I was going to. And everybody seems to play that wrong. They play it in the wrong octave. They, they want to play it like it was written for a, a E flat trumpet. But it's actually, you know, in the upper rate, yeah, uh, right. register, but it's actually lower. So it's so like I, an E flat alto kind of range. Yes, and it's it's a, it's and it's a trumpet part. Yeah, <laughs> so so I've I've heard a recording, I've couple recordings where people have, and I'm I'm always listening like, what is that part sticking out? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's always the E flat played in the wrong octaves. So, gotcha. But but that that uh, that was the book that was used by bands across the the country. Uh, mm -hmm. It was it was a, a wonderful resource, and. Uh, the unfortunate thing about that is that there was no scores for that sure. book. Yeah, yeah. But Paul Mayberry, who's another great resource, mm -hmm. I'm sure he's, his name has been mentioned here before. Definitely. Paul actually did a full score of that. Yeah. So it, it's out there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. very it, helpful. It, yes, sure. very yeah. helpful. And it's, if you're if you're looking to see how you know these bands, uh, this band music was arranged, it's great to look at that as a start. It's also great to look at Squires, mm -hmm. uh, and of course there are some original scores that are out there. I believe that the Third New Hampshire there there's some uh, some manuscripts that still exist. Mm -hmm. um, so if we could double back real quick to the physical appearance and the uniforms, I had a question looking at a bunch of different uh, Civil War reenacting in modern day early American brass right. bands and looking at their pictures and, and uniforms. Yeah. Uh, I'm seeing, or it appears at least to me, that the Federal City Brass Band is one of the few ensembles that utilizes a sash as a part of their uniform. Can Correct. You, can you talk about that a little bit? <laughs> Correct. You know, um, uh, we've been asked about that. You know, I had talked with the uh, Wildcat Band uh, about it. They said, oh, at one time we used to also do that. Uh, it has to be remembered that the, the brass bands were usually town bands, uh, mm -hmm. organized or, uh, groups brought into service uh, for a, a, a regiment. And these uh, bands were like the the showcase, the, the showpiece of a regiment and colonels wanted to have them spiffy, you know, make them, we have them wear white, you know, white gloves and dress up as much as possible. Also the pay was a little higher uh, for these musicians than the regular soldier too. Uh, so the idea that we had with having the, the sash was to distinguish them from regular uh, soldiers that some, if someone saw that, that they were wearing a sash, they could say it's either an officer or a band. Hmm. Uh, and yeah, yeah. we also, the other thing we did is that we decided instead of wearing the forage, standard forage caps, was to wear the French style kepi. Mm -hmm. And on it, we at the very top, if you'll notice, we have an eagle pin, uh, Civil War eagle pin. Um, and the reason for that is that we found a couple photos of, you know, bands of, of that time period who were, you know, 
they, they had something a little different about them. And mm -hmm. so it was just kind of good because I remember at one reenactment, uh, one of our guys was walking around and somebody said, oh, there's the band. Uh, because they re they recognized that he had a hat pin and was wearing a sash. Oh, the band's here. Yeah, um, there you go. So, you know, it, it's one of those one of those things. It can be uncomfortable for guys too because they you know don't like to wear those sashes all the time. And mm -hmm. and if we really wanted to go the full full Monty, we'd also wear musician swords, hmm. uh, which were authorized uh, for for bandsmen. Uh, and in fact, we did do that at uh, a couple times, uh, but it's it's very tough and it's very can be awkward if you have a sword and trying to play a brass instrument. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so, you know, when we do that, you know, when showcasing the band. So. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah. And along those same lines, uh, the horns you use with the Federal City Brass Band are all period and period mouthpieces, correct? Correct. That's one of the things that distinguishes us from a, a lot of other groups in that um, we, we try to be uh, as authentic as possible with, with the instruments. Um, uh, of course, a lot of these coronets, I have to be very honest about it, the, but these Boston uh, front belled uh, rotary valve are... 1865, 1866, 1867, vintage. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's close enough, yeah, close, enough, close, yeah. close enough uh, where we don't, we're, we're not going to be bringing in, you know, 1890s, 1900s uh, coronets, right. uh, piston valves. Mm -hmm. um, so we, tr we try to do that. The other important thing with the band uh, is the use of mouthpieces. We have, we encourage everyone and I always do use an authentic mouthpiece of the time. Mm -hmm. I have difficulties with people who uh, use like modern, like Bach mouthpieces, unfortunately, because mm -hmm. it gives a completely different sound to the instrument. Yeah. It, it's a much brighter sound. Even if it's a coronet mouthpiece, you're still going to get a, 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 a different tonal quality. Um, and people have always noticed like, oh, when the band plays, they, they wonder why is it so dark sounding? It sounds, it sounds like French. Is it because we're playing on original instruments? That's the way. That's the way it would have would have sounded at that at that time. Yeah. Uh, of course, using uh, instruments, especially in the field, and I'll tell you one of the great things about the Federal City Brass is that we did a lot of reenactments. We actually went out there and spent you know the weekend, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. set up set up a camp did uh you know drills we had morning roll calls oh the guys love that <laughs> uh and, and we would play for you know parades and then in the evening we would go over to an officers mess and, and play a serenade for them just mm -hmm. like they did back then huh. uh, we, we tried to make it as authentic as, as possible and it, it's very tough what i was going to say is it's very tough with these instruments because when you're out in the field they they break down Mm. Um, fortunately, besides, you know, the music and, and the uniforms and the horns, we've had great people in the federal city brass folks like, uh, Jeff Stockham, uh, Don Johnson, uh, Brian Kander, Kanner, and those two guys, by the way, those last two, uh, Don and Brian are members of, were members of a, a natural trumpet group. 
So they had some very good in, uh, background with that. Jeff is yeah. Jeff is a great collector. We've had people like Garmin Bowers, who uh, was not really into Civil War when it started, but is now one of the best uh, drum repair guys in the country for Civil War drums. Hmm. He's, he's, he learned so much. So we have guys like him. We, have, we worked with John Bionars, who wrote two terrific volumes on Civil War bands. Uh, and these are books about the bands after the order went to disband two thirds. He went to the, he spent years in the National Archives researching and found the listing of bands that existed that no one knew about. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I have both of those books. It's pretty incredible. The amount of research and you, you think, two books but these are like yes. two, two three <laughs> inches thick each you know it, it's they're they're hefty it's it's incredible he, he and he's got a lot more information and what he did was like one of these things that people like why didn't i figure this um he went to the pension records Hmm. Pension records are full of so much information. You know, you can find out where these guys were, what they did, because a lot of these were filed, you know, years after the Civil War. Hmm. So you can find out quite a bit. And, and, and as a favor to me, he uh, picked up the pension records for Oliver Wilcox Norton. Hmm. Very cool. Uh, yeah, very, very cool. Uh, what happened is that his wife after his death filed for the like $20, $50 uh, mm-hmm. widows. He, she was a millionaire, mm-hmm. you know, because oh. he, he, when he died, he was, he was a millionaire, but, but she, she filed for that uh, pension because. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it was, why not? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> why not? It's there. <laughs> it, it's that's right. Yeah. And then still in, in terms of the instruments, you guys are, you know, uh, a very, well-known, but not also like a, a growing ensemble. I know that you guys kind of have uh, a, a fair number of musicians that play for you. Is the Are the instruments owned by the Federal City Brass Band? Are they your personal collection? Is it people playing on their own instruments? How, how does that work? Once again, that question is yes. Yeah. <laughs> a, a little bit of everything. Another guy in the group, uh, Dana Shopper, who is uh, a retired um uh, funeral uh, director he has spent his life uh, finding instruments and then fixing them up so he has a large collection so he helps provide instruments to anyone who needs them uh mark has mark alrod has been really terrific about learning instruments jeff stockham's uh uh instruments uh, inventory is huge. Jeff also runs a band up in New York, the Excelsior Brass mm-hmm. Band. And mm-hmm. so he, he supplies all the instruments for his group. So when we have a group and, and someone doesn't own their own instrument, most of the guys do, but occasionally we'll have somebody who comes in who doesn't, mm-hmm. we're able to fix them up with a, yes. with a, with a horn. And, and we never want to get into a situation where we don't have a, a proper instrument mainly because the intonation is just going to cause havoc because you can't play a modern instrument in that band yeah, with, that's, with a high pitched <laughs> that's where we're at with uh, our group now in in fairfax we have two period cornets and then we have a tuba and some alto horns that are like early 1900s and then everything else is on modern horns and we spend basically every rehearsal just trying to find a with each other <laughs> yeah, yeah that's 
it's very difficult. <laughs> it, it reminds me of, of an unfortunate recording of a group, um, and no names here. Of course. <laughs> uh, they had also a mixture of instruments, both modern and original, but they didn't bother to try and go either way with the intonation. So the alto horn is really a whole half step sharp through the entire recording. Yikes. It's it's painful to listen yeah, yeah. to, Oof. but 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 unfortunately that's, that's what they had. Now uh, I I know of I believe VMI also has a set of of instruments. Yes. Yeah, they do. Yep, a double set as the story goes, because uh, they had Rob Stewart. They commissioned Rob Stewart to make a set for them, I think of like five or six instruments. Mm-hmm. And somehow the, the order got doubled. Huh. Yeah, it's, it, might be, it might be interesting for you to uh, contact Rob and have him come on and talk about him, uh, oh, yeah, about his. Fun. He and uh, Mark Metzler are, have been like two of the guys, the go-to guys for repair of instruments. I, I know I sent him my uh, B-flat coronet, uh, Mark Metzler, mm-hmm. to be fixed up. And I've also sent work out to uh, Rob Stewart. Just wonderful, thing, you know, artists. You know. Yeah, of course. And the, their own collections and everything. Yeah, they're uh, a lot to be able to talk about with those with those guys as well. So we're looking forward to hopefully being able to pick their brains on, on all this t- uh, type of stuff also. <laughs> That's great. Well, and of course, you know, the Federal City Brass, as I mentioned before, you know, does a representation of, uh, of a standard band in the Union Army. Uh, on the other side, we have our 26th North Carolina band, mm-hmm. which I'll touch on briefly because I know we could spend an entire oh, yeah, sure. show just on that. Right. And all, our standard joke is that, you know, we just flip the coats on inside out. <laughs> <laughs> it's the inside lining. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but in reality, you know, when we decided to do that group, we went once again, just all out in the research, uh, deciding to get the exact material of the uniform that the band had. Uh, so we went to Ben Tart and found he made us material. We went to Greg Starpuck for the, for the hats we went to the Moravian Foundation in North Carolina for music. Mm-hmm. Uh, we went to Harry Hall's book for information about what the band was and what they did and everything. And that band, the 26th North Carolina, it's probably the only Confederate band that we know of that has a real history because they kept diaries. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, Harry Hall's wonderful dissertation uh, in the 1950s, which led to his book um, on the 26th North Carolina, uh, is just wonderful. And we, we had the great honor of that band of going down to North Carolina, uh, meeting the descendants of the original band members, wow. playing at the graves of the band. They're all buried in the cemetery uh, in, in Salem, mm-hmm. close by each other. They, they, they lived they, they played and they all died close together. It's, it's, yeah, it's, wow. it's an amazing thing, a true band of brothers. Mm-hmm. And, and then I had a nice little relationship, uh, mailing relationship with Harry Hall. Uh, and he was just terrific. And in fact, uh, just the other day, I got a, uh, a photograph from one of the descendants of, of another picture of Sam Mickey, who was the leader of that band. Oh, wow. so, so our our decision to go with, with that 
was to make sure if we were going to represent one band, that's the band we wanted to do because it's yeah, yeah. just a wonderful story. And there's so many great, great tales about what they did. Yeah, I'm in the middle of reading that book currently, actually. Yeah, it's it's incredible stuff. It, it, it really is. And, and they were, you know, of course, they're the band that was under fire at Gettysburg on the second day. Mm-hmm. that they had formed up with the 11th North Carolina reluctantly at first because mm-hmm. they did not want to leave their wounded comrades. Mm-hmm. They were doing hospital duty when they got mm-hmm. the order to go and play, and they did not want to, to leave, not because they were afraid of playing, but because they didn't want to leave their friends. Yeah. Um, and so they they did, and, you know, there's that great quote from Lieutenant Colonel Fremantle about the band playing yeah, while yeah, yeah. all the bombs hissing and all that stuff. Yeah, and, and then, of course, and you'll probably find this in a book, that afterwards, on the, on the march back to Virginia after the defeat at Gettysburg, the band was called to the headquarters of General Lee. Mm-hmm. Um, and they went there, Sam Mickey went there and he was shaking in his boots because he was sure that uh, they were going to be told that you, you guys are going to need to swap your instruments oh, yeah. for muskets. Yeah. And, and just, just the opposite handle happened. Uh, hmm. Lee had mentioned to them that no, no, no. He thought they were the best band in the Confederate army. And then he, he made that great quote, you know, I don't believe we can have an army without music. Yeah. So Lee's talking about the 26th North Carolina. So it's, it's a great tribute to to those men who played. It's also a, a great understanding of the military mind, knowing that music was so important to the to the morale, to the spiritual morale of men. To you know, listening to the music every day to to, to keep them in line when marching and stuff. It's mm-hmm. uh, it was it's a powerful thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Bands on both sides did the same thing. You know, they not only played for the parades, the dress parades, and they played the serenades, they played church services too. They played hymns on Sunday morning, uh, which was very important to the men. And they also had the unfortunate duty of playing for executions too. The, uh, a, a, a prisoner would be brought out uh, to be executed, the band would lead the way playing the Dead March in Saul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, you'll read about this in the, in the book, that the band was given the task of loading the rifles because uh, they would have muskets for each one of the, 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 the firing squad. But one rifle was blanks, not mm-hmm. bullets. So everybody would have the idea that they they didn't kill the guy. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and th- there's a great, great story in the, in the book about how, you know, this prisoner was brought out that he had run away three times, to- two times. And they said, you know, they, they, they put him out, they read the order of execution and it says, and then much to the relief of everyone. And certainly the, the one involved, another order was brought out, giving his full pardon and his return yeah. to the company. <laughs> And then, like the, the phone ringing on the green mile, right? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> but but then, you know, the, the, the diary goes on, but then he was killed, you know, at, at Gettysburg. And it's yes. like, oh. So yeah, that yeah. sad stories like that. And then you're going to read the funny story about the um, about bugling. Mm-hmm. 
because uh, the a commander decided to, to use one of the cornet players from the 26th to do bugling for the for brigade drill. Mm-hmm. And you have to read the story because the guy didn't know any one bugle call from another. Because they were oh, yeah. they were they were the brass band. They were not yeah, the field yeah. musicians. For sure. Mm-hmm. So he was given the book, but he didn't look at it. And they went out there on horseback. And every time, you know, the, the general would shout, you know, by the left flank, you know, you're supposed to play a call, and then they shout, March. And he would just make up calls, just make up sounds. And he said they rode back to the camp in silence. He said, I was never asked to do it again. <laughs> could be like a comedy you know like a, a movie just on, on that type of thing that's it sounds like national lampoon or something yeah <laughs> i could just only imagine you know the faces of these these soldiers out there like yeah. what the hell was that yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. so but uh, yeah brass bands were just so important in the everyday life of, of soldiers since they didn't you know have what we have today in the way of any kind of recordings um uh, and of course, the bands played the popular tunes of the day. Uh, operatic arias were so popular. Mm-hmm. The British style ballads they loved, um, and of course, all the, the great marches. The marches written by people like Claudio Grifula. Claudio Grifula's music was heard everywhere, even by Confederate bands, uh, because bands would visit each other and they would copy out parts into their own books. And so it's it's amazing. I mean, Grafula was like the John Philip Sousa of, of the Civil War, and wrote great music. Um, and we have a lot of his music uh, in, in our libraries today. And he is, he is the guy, he and then, you know, Patrick Gilmore, help set, you know, what is to become the modern concert band movement in the United States. You know, yeah, Gilmore sure. takes it to the next step. Then he dies and uh, John Phillips Sousa yeah. takes up the mantle and boom, there yeah, we go. <laughs> off to the races. <laughs> right. Going back a little bit in reference to the Federal City Brass Band's repertoire that you guys play, I know you're talking about the period instruments, the uh, historically correct uniforms in terms of the music that you guys play uh, are you reading out of uh, books of the original manuscript are you reading on uh, re-engraved music is it new arrangements how, how does that work we have to uh, use re-engraved music and I spent a lot of time working and, and taking the music and putting it into finale um, and then creating parts for all, all the band. And I, when I would do an arrangement uh, for the band or transcription or edition, um, I would set it up so that the, the music could be set up on uh, landscape, so it could be shrunk down, so it could be put onto marching folders, or it would be put uh, for a sit-down situations. Mm-hmm. The reason for it is that uh, the correct, you know, obviously, you know, make corrections with, with errors in notes, to try to put in articulations and dynamics so that the group would would, would be more cohesive. One of the issues with reading uh, the, the original manuscripts, and it's wonderful that they did this. And I know that, you know, back in 1960, Frederick Fennell's group, they all read off those mm-hmm. yeah. uh, the, manuscripts. Oh. Yeah. And in <laughs> fact, and, and Saxon's cornet band, one of the things I've always admired about them is that they were reading, everybody copied out their books by hand. Oh, wow. 
yeah, which is which is pretty cool. We made the choice that we wanted to do it, you know, have have the the music, you know, engraved. And when I did it, I would uh, I I found some Civil War fonts, of course, mm -hmm. and and I tried to make the music look period like as if it were printed uh, during that time. As sure. much as as much as possible, mm -hmm. so yeah, yeah, we we would do do that, and and that's just one of the uh, things that we had to do in order to to bring this music. And of course, it, it it helped if you had somebody who was coming into the band for the first time. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine it in our group with college age students if somebody needs to drop in at the last second, having them read, you know, out of the Manchester books, you know, that stuff is very difficult to, yeah. to read. So. <laughs> exactly. Um, and if, you know, it'd be great if, if we had a consistency of uh, players that played all the time, it would be, that would be one thing, mm -hmm. but you know, a lot of these bands back then, and, and I, I, I found this out just by doing reenactments, a lot of these bands, they would have a certain amount of music memorized. Like when I, when I was in the ceremonial brass with the Air Force, we had four or five memorized marches that uh, the conductor could just pull up and say, you know, Queen City, boom, yeah. we we play it, or this march, boom, Billboard March, boom, we play it. Uh, to this day, we you know the Federal City Brass, if we're doing a little parade, we would do Battle Hymn of the Republic and Rally Round the Flag memorized because we've played it so much yeah. and 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 i was as we would be doing this i was thinking this is probably how they did it back then you know mm -hmm. they had a few pieces that the band knew really really well um so uh, the music has always been you know an important part and of course trying to make sure that we didn't arrange the music in modern style mm-hmm as being an arranger myself, the temptation is to write in maybe some modern harmonies <laughs> mm -hmm. or perhaps even write a nice little um, uh, counter melody in the, in the trombone or baritone part like you would mm -hmm. find in, in, in marches and stuff. A lot of these things are very simplistic. You know, mm -hmm. the, the E-flat cornet player had the, the bulk of the work to do with the melody all the way through. The B-flat cornets in support the altos and the tenors providing the off beats and the basses, the B flat basses and the E flat basses providing, uh, you know, the down beats, the foundation of the chord. So the, the simplistic, you know, arrangements, it, it, you know, by today's standards for a lot of these arrangements, until you look at some of the big opera uh, arrangements oh, yeah. that were done back yeah. then. And oh my gosh, you know, what really wonderful stuff. The, the Port Royal band, for, for example, just, mm -hmm. just incredible stuff, but they had, you know, f incredible people writing for that band. I think his name Ingalls was his name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 It's it, so, that's a that's one of the the joys that I know Stephen and I have been finding playing in the the band that we play with down in Virginia. How when new people come in, you know, which at a university is happening each semester, but people come in and want to play, and they're like, "All right, yep, we are gonna play Yankee Doodle, Battle Cry of Freedom, <laughs> When Johnny Comes Marching Home," and that's like what they're expecting to play. But then here's all this like right. meat meaty brass <laughs> band rep that has difficult you know parts in every voice and like people are needing the practice and yeah. like to yeah. see to see the to see the shock that this type of music existed in like the 1850s <laughs> you know it's it's pretty 
<laughs> it's entertaining to, yeah, <laughs> to you'll, go through you'll that read process through it the first time and you get that that classic lean in to the right. stance when, when the music gets really hard. <laughs> oh no, gotta get closer. Yeah, I I I usually just covered my eyes. You know, <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, you know, you, you bring up such a good point about you know the standard pieces. You know, everybody expects you know certain battle hymn of the republic, uh, rally around the flag, uh, red, white, and blue, and you know those are the at the top of any. Uh, you know, list of pieces that people, you know, bands need to have. Mm -hmm. It's, 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 it's like going and seeing a Dixie Bland band play and they got to play when the saints go marching yeah, in, <laughs> you know, yeah, it's yeah. like, uh, okay. All right. Yeah. We play it. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned uh, queen city that marched uh, with the air force band that's been on the, the two most recent euphonium auditions for the ceremonial brass. So Chris and I have the intro and the first strain memorized. <laughs> Oh, excellent. <laughs> what was on the what was on the list, yes. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's been you know, one of the standards in that band. Right. Yeah. <laughs> still is, still is. Yeah. And and of course, just in case they ask, the the answer is Cincinnati. Cincinnati, Ohio, yep. <laughs> oh, okay. Good to know. That's the, yeah, that's the Queen City. That's yeah, the yeah. Queen City. <laughs> I'll write that on the excerpt next time there's an audition. It's it's <laughs> written on top of my copy. Nice. Oh, it's oh, oh okay. Well, I, I wrote it in there. I did a oh, quick oh, Google oh. search. Yeah. Did the research. <laughs> Doubling back for a second with the, the Federal City Brass Band, I, I have a question with your experience there that I kind of like to, to pick some brains about. Sure. Uh, over, over the course of the time that you've been running the group, you know, gr granted you guys existed before the 150th and now we're on the, the other side of that hill. In terms of audience uh, receptiveness or uh, maybe in just attendance in general to, to certain, types of, certain types of these events, have you noticed any type of uh, correlation or any, inc uh, not to lead the question, but any any uh, in increased hostilities by any chance? If you're referring to the certain music that's uh, to be performed and uniforms, it, it, times have changed. Uh, mm -hmm. Our perceptions, you know, have changed. And I... I like to think of, you know, what we do, especially when we wear the uniforms of the 26th North Carolina, is that we're talking about music. We're talking about these men who were, by the way, they were Moravians uh, from the Moravian community of North Carolina mm -hmm. who were interested in doing one thing. They were interested in serving what they considered their country. Mm -hmm. um, None of them owned slaves. Uh, they were all worker. They were all shopkeepers, bookbinders, tinsmiths uh, within Salem, North Carolina. Um, I, I think you know performing this music in its proper context is important. But it, we've gotten to the point now in 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 our culture where it's very difficult to do that, and unfortunately, that's sad because. The, especially with the story of the uh, the North Carolina boys, it's it's a, it's a wonderful story about how these guys persevered for four years, and and then of course what they did afterwards is is just as important. Mm -hmm. um, after the war, these guys, well, towards the end of the war, they were captured by Union mm -hmm. forces and spent three months in a prisoner of war camp, but they came back, and uh, they went on living their lives, helping to put this country back together. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so interesting to see photographs of this, the band members getting older as the, as the years progress into the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I've noticed with our audiences um, that they are receptive that when we play things in its proper context, it's, it's understandable. Um, yeah. It's, it's we, the case with, with everything in, in this vein of conversation with the music, with monuments, with the flag. It, it's context and, and knowledge about what you're talking about is everything, I think. A- absolutely. And, you know, if we were to do an event and someone has said they're not comfortable with, uh, with us doing something in particular, we would honor that. I wouldn't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers. Um, mm-hmm. But when we do our presentation, it, it's important. I mean, for example, uh, the night of the surrender, you know, Lincoln went out on the balcony to uh, address people and, you know, everything. And he called for the band to play Dixie. Yeah. And he had said, you know, the, the attorney general, uh, you know, I got advice from him and he said, yes, we can play it. Yeah, and, 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 Dix, and Dixie was actually a favorite piece of Lincoln's. He had heard it many, many times before, just before the war. Yeah. Uh, there was even a campaign song that used that melody. Uh, so, like I said, context, context, context. Um, so, right. So it's in, that's all in relation to your 26th impression. I know that you're your federal city uh, presentation, you know, being in Baltimore could be a little bit safer, but you know, at the same time, Baltimore and the civil war doesn't have the cleanest history either. So, so how does that, how does that work? (laughs) It is, it is tough. A Baltimore was called mob town. And of course, when on April 19th, 1861, they had the members of the six Massachusetts that were coming through. And if you're not familiar with Baltimore, there are basically two train stations you had to deal with if you were coming from the north on the way to the on the way to Washington. You would get off the train in East Baltimore at President Street Station, which is in Little Italy, our section of Baltimore. You'd have to walk across Pratt Street or be on a train, a, a, a horse a horse drawn train across mm-hmm. Pratt Street over to Camden Yards or Camden Station, where. The, the baseball stadium is today. Mm-hmm. In fact, that's how Lincoln snuck through uh, on his mm-hmm. way. Well, anyway, uh, Baltimore had always been full of Southern sympathizers. It was a town, of course, north of Baltimore. Lincoln was very uh, concerned that if, if the town did fall into Confederate hands, it could be trouble for Washington. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and people, quite honestly, were not happy with seeing uh, federal troops or militias actually that were soon to become federalized coming through their town and things got heated on April 19th when the sixth Massachusetts rolled through and instead of going on the trains they they marched through through the town and of course a mob gathered stones were thrown and the troops opened fire uh, there were six members uh, I believe six members of the regiment that were killed and and, and number of, of citizens killed the band by the way refused to get off the train <laughs> <laughs> Smart. They, yeah i was gonna say they, they had a feeling maybe yeah, yeah they uh they were um i forget the name of the band but they were you know a professional band that was hired by the the by the sixth massachusetts and they were to become the regimental band but they turned around went back to boston they probably said uh, I don't think so. Yeah, yeah, for so, sure. So, yeah, yes. so, so they didn't come back. Now, 
of course, Lincoln uh, answers that by stationing federal troops up on Fort uh, on Federal Hill, which is a hill that overlooks the harbor. Mm -hmm. And if you go there today, you'll still, still see cannons that are trained on downtown Baltimore. And they sent uh, troops up there to set up a fort, which became Fort Federal Hill for the rest of the, the war. And the first commander of those troops up there was a, a, a feisty uh, general by the name of Benjamin Butler, who was to go on to uh, inf infamy, infamy during the Civil War for like hanging somebody for desecrating a U.S. flag. Uh, he was, he was not a, a nice guy, but, yeah. but he threatened Baltimore and said, look, if you, uh, if you get out of line, we've got these cannons trained right on downtown Baltimore. Yeah. So, uh, a couple weeks later, the first New Hampshire comes through Baltimore. And once again, people start gathering and they're afraid, oh my gosh, this is going to be another, uh, uh, this is going to be a repeat of what happened before. Now, what the first New Hampshire brought was a secret weapon, and it was in the, uh, in the form of their drum major, hmm. Francis Harvey Pike, who was better known as Saxy Pike. And he was a tall guy. Um, he had a special uh, baton that was given to him, especially by the governor of New Hampshire. And he led his band in front of the troops struck up Yankee Doodle, swung his arms with his baton, and the crowds parted. They couldn't believe what the hell's going on. Yeah, yeah. His band's playing Yankee Doodle, and they they made it safely through the town. Yeah, wow. Thank, thanks to thanks to Saxy. Yeah, leave it to the band. <laughs> exactly. There you, there you go. Leave it to the band. <laughs> Very good. Thank All right, you. well. Yari, I think we're going to start wrapping it up there, but, okay. but, but, but before we call it, would you, uh, are there any upcoming, uh, well, right now with the health crisis performances, but not, not quite any, any research or, uh, CDs or anything that you would like to highlight, uh, right now? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity. Of First of all, this weekend was supposed to be very busy for us. We had a, um, a concert scheduled down in Southern Maryland. Uh, and we were also set to play for the reopening of Arlington House at Arlington National Cemetery. Mm. The Lee Mansion has been undergoing uh, reconstruction. They keep doing this every so many, many years, <laughs> and they keep asking us to come back to play for the reopening. There you so go. We, <laughs> <laughs> which is wonderful. And unfortunately, that's all been you know postponed for the time mm -hmm. being. So we hope that that comes back. And of course, the band always participates in the um, uh, Remembrance Day up in uh, up in Gettysburg. And your band should come up and, and, and do that. It's 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 quite a nice thing to do. And the parade is nice and everything, but what we do is at four o'clock in the afternoon of Remembrance Day, we go up on a little round top and all the brass players from all different bands gather together and we play, uh, we play some marches first and then we spend some time uh, playing, paying homage, you know, to the, to the boys of 61. Yeah. Uh, now, for folks who are interested, uh, yeah, the, the Federal City Brass has three, count them, three uh, CDs. Our first one that we did was called Pride of the Regiment. Uh, our second one that we did is called uh, Better Than Rations or Medicine, 
which that title is taken from uh, a letter of soldier who wrote home and, you know, was talking about the brass band music that it was, you know, better than rations or medicine. Mm -hmm. And our third one uh, is hurrah for the union and it's music of Abraham Lincoln and the civil war. So it's music that Lincoln would have heard uh, during his time. We, uh, we include two pieces that Lincoln didn't hear the piece that was scheduled to be performed for him at Ford's theater uh, the night he was assassinated, a piece called Honor to Our Soldiers, written by uh, William Withers, the band director, band orchestra conductor, and the funeral march, one of the funeral marches for Abraham Lincoln. Uh, a lot of that album, uh, a lot of that CD was recorded at a Ford's Theater. We performed there a couple times, and uh, the band was incredibly honored to be asked to come back on the, uh, the 150th anniversary of the assassination. They had a special program that evening, which ended at the time that Lincoln was assassinated uh, and then played at the morning ceremony after when they announced uh, his death. So it was, it was just an incredible evening. The, the Federal City Brass has been involved with some really wonderful uh, projects over its existence of almost 20 years. And uh, I really cannot say enough great things about the people who have uh, participated with the band and have put up with me um, because <laughs> I've, uh, you know, acted as, you know, cornet player as the drum major for the band and conductor for the band. And it, it's been wonderful. So we, we have these, these great three CDs that we've done. Um, I also run a couple uh, Facebook pages uh, where Federal City Brass Band has its own uh, Facebook page. The 26th North Carolina has its own Facebook page. I've done one that's called Civil War Band um, that just I try to put in, if anyone sends a video of their band, their Civil War Band playing, or if I see something, I'll post it up there and try to put information. I also have a thing called Civil War Bugler. I also have my uh, big one, which is called Taps Bugler. Uh, it's a Facebook page and also uh, www.tapsbugler.com where you can go and find information about anything about civil about bugling from the civil war on and a lot of information on taps uh and last but not least i also run the facebook page uh john philip susa uh david lauren uh who is a saxophone player and tremendous tremendous arranger down in dallas started this facebook Book page years ago and it was basically languishing there with like 300 people who liked it so i asked him to let me on and uh we've got it up to a couple I, I, maybe eight thousand now i think yeah, i'm not yeah, sure you have good numbers like last time i checked yeah. <laughs> it's and, and i'm always trying to put find some great information about susa and one of the other great resources i've also mentioned a big shout out should go out to laura's schissel uh, Lars, of course, is at the Library of Congress, and he has been kind enough to send me uh, scores, uh, music, uh, photographs. When the band played at the Library of Congress one time, he brought us into this room. You know, we were all like warming up. He says, oh, guys, follow me, follow me, follow me. When we walked into the room, he opens up a box, and there is the original note that Lincoln sent to uh, the band leader, Scala. 
uh, the Marine Band saying, you know, Mrs. Lincoln would like to, to oh, talk yeah. to the the leader of the band. Yeah, <laughs> and, we, yeah. and we're all staring at the original piece of paper. And it's, wow. I saw that so picture he, in the uh, the Lincoln and the music book. Yes. Right? Yeah, there's a, a picture of it. So that's awesome that you were able to see the uh, the original. Yeah, he. Uh, we we were we were all like jumped back. No, I don't. <laughs> we were so afraid to go close to him. But yeah. he he's been really wonderful and provides a lot of great information. So, so between the CDs, the wonderful people who've played, you know, with our group, uh, you know, I can't say you know enough because, you know, you, you do a lot of work, you try to do a lot of research, but none of it could possibly happen without you know having great people. Um, and I should also before so I don't. So I get fed tonight. Uh, uh, should do a great shout out to Heather Faust, our, who's, who was our manager for a long time. And Heather really uh, was a really strong force behind the band for many, 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 many years. And uh, she happens to be my wife. Oh, there you go. So, <laughs> that helps. <laughs> yes. Uh, so a lot of great stuff. And, and, and along the way, I've met some just absolutely wonderful people. Having Getting a chance to meet people like Frederick Fennell, uh, Raul Camus, uh, Mark Elrod, uh, Paul Mayberry, you know, all the big, all the big names in this, you know, it just meeting with them and having a chat with them. has just been phenomenal. And uh, so I hope that this hobby, if we want to call it a hobby, mm -hmm. uh, still stays on for a long time because it's, it's so important to our history and our, and our country that we look at this great brass band movement of the mid 19th century. Mm -hmm. For sure. And, and all those sentiments are, are reciprocated from us to you as well. We can't thank you enough for, all your contributions to again we'll put it in air quotes the hobby of of preserving this music and and everything you've done and and for taking the time to talk to us today so well, thank you sure. so much sure yeah. let me just end with this one last great quote that garmin bauer said you know um you know about like when you you know you listening to our music it's it's, it's what history sounds like mm -hmm. you know and when I could, I, you know, I thought about that quote for a long time. And yeah, when you hear a band playing original music on original horns, this is what history sounds like. Thank you again to Yari Villanueva for coming out uh, onto Zoom for his interview with us this afternoon. Uh, we could have gone on for, for hours and hours. We, we edited this episode to a, uh, you know, remove some content, but then to also cut out some of the sections where we were saying how, uh, oh man, this this could be a whole hour episode by itself. So we already have an outline of uh, all the multiple more times that we will have Yari on uh, to speak with us, and we're incredibly excited for those times as well. Yeah. This episode's featured album is one of the albums that Yari was mentioning uh, at the end of that podcast by the Federal City Brass Band, Hurrah for the Union. This is the album uh, that utilizes all the music that President Lincoln would have heard in the White House at the time of his presidency, uh, as well as two tunes that are directly related to Lincoln, but unfortunately ones that he wouldn't have heard while he was still alive. So we're going to post some information about that album, including where you can purchase it and where you can listen to it uh, on our show notes section of our website. And we hope that you check out 
Hurrah for the Union, music of Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War by the Federal City Brass Band. Yeah, and be sure to uh, check out the show notes on our website. That's eabbpodcast.com. And if you have any suggestions for us or want to get in touch with us, you can do that on Facebook. We're on Facebook. If you just search the Early American Brass Band Podcast, you can also email us at eabb.podcast at gmail.com. And like we said before, if you're enjoying the show, please like, uh, subscribe, rate, and review uh, on your chosen platform. That really helps us out. We're also on YouTube. You can find us there. And we mentioned that eventually that's going to uh, have some exclusive content there. So you can get out ahead of that by subscribing now. And I think that just about wraps it up. So uh, we'll, we'll talk to you on Episode 7. Thank you.